Hello and welcome to the Data Journalism Podcast. My name is Simon Rogers. I'm a data journalist, speaker and teacher and data editor at Google. And my name is Alberto Cairo. I am a professor of visualization at the University of Miami, an infographics designer and journalist and also a book author. We love using data to tell stories and the music you can hear is the sound of data made with two-tone, an app that turns numbers into tunes. And this is the Data Journalism Podcast, the only podcast, as far as we know, and at least so far, dissecting the latest trends in data journalism around the world. In each episode, we will explore the latest in data journalism, and we will chat with some of the world's top data reporters. You will get to find out how they do what they do. So subscribe to datajournalismpodcast.com to see how the data is changing the world of journalism forever. This session was recorded on Thursday, April 20th, 2023 at the International Journalism Festival in Perugia, Italy. The session was on the state of data journalism today. Good afternoon, everybody, online and offline. It's a full offline crowd, which is a good thing. Packed theater here. And uh, my name is Lars Boering. I'm the director of the European Journalism Center. We also run our platform, datajournalism.com. We have a fine group of people here behind the table, Tara Kelly, Simon Rogers, and Simon, uh, sorry, Sondra Solstadt, yeah. Let's get that right. Who in the audience here is a data journalist? Ah, who's interested in data journalism? All of you, of course. I think there you go. Now we've got everybody connected. Um, we are looking today at not just showing you that datajournalism.com is one of the platforms to make sure that we understand in journalism that data journalism is there already for a while, but it's also life and kicking. And even though artificial intelligence kind of cuts through everything these days, um, we can also see how that affects data journalism, but also how important it is. So we have decided two years ago to do a survey. And uh, this time here, it's the second time that we report on the results of the survey. So we have some slides to show you that um, and uh, to use that also as some talking points. Feel free at some point that we invite you to uh, ask some questions. There's, uh, there's people with microphones walking around. I can tell you already that you're not allowed to grab the microphone. It's always in the hands of uh, the person that will facilitate you asking the question. But let's get uh, going and see if we can get the first uh, slide up. Um, hopefully that works and uh, take it from there. There you go, State of Data Journalism 2022, even though we are in 23. Some survey results, let's, uh, let's go for the first session. Some key findings, um, machine learning and data processing require the most training, but offer the least for data journalism. I mean, we can all read, uh, it's on there. And um, I would say uh, more than one in three data journalists are self-taught. That is always something that catches my eye. That means that there is a clear necessity for information and uh, that we continue to serve into that with, with the platform and also with uh, education insights. And the other thing we talk about today, access to quality data remains a very big challenge for data journalists. Um, second slide is here up. We will start talking about that. Um, machine learning and data processing required the most training, but offered the least for data journalists. Um, Simon, what do you what do you see in that? I mean, you have a blog and you have a, uh, reported, you read the, the the whole report, and you have so many extra insights, but. Chat GPT, generative AI tools, they, they went viral. Um, what are your thoughts about that and the, the, how it will shape data journalism and journalism in general? Thank you. So the interesting thing is, for me, is if you look at like the history of journalism, and data journalism in particular, all journalism really, has always been 
Oh, that would be helpful, wouldn't it? Sorry, I will say that again. So if you look at the history of journalism and data journalism, it's always been at the forefront of whatever technology is going along, even like the Telegraph, right? The Telegraph was kind of you know, used extensively by reporters in ways that it wasn't being used by other people um, when it was invented. And I think the same is happening with AI. There's actually a ton of really interesting data journalism work out there being done with AI like right now. And because if you think about it, a lot of data journalism is about taking the mundane and boring tasks that we don't want to do and getting a machine to do it better. And what, data what AI is really good for is, say, categorization. And we've seen this this year. One of the winners of the Sigma Awards is um, NRK with a project called Worlds Apart this year. And what they did was they used AI to kind of categorize and look at how different TikTok videos are being surfaced in Russia and in Ukraine. Fascinating piece of work. There's a project we were involved with, with Al Universal in Mexico, where they were using uh, natural language processing, which is basically a form of AI, to categorize news articles and show where, which parts of the country were not covering uh, drug cartel murders. So there's a ton of, I think, really interesting work happening. Isn't, obviously, it will get more and more, but I think you know, because data journalists are always kind of pushing technology and pushing the bounds of what's possible, I think we'll find ourselves using AI in ways we don't quite know yet. Yeah. Uh, Sandra, it, it, it's not just for text. It can be used for code and, uh, and analysis, as Simon says. What are your predictions for this? Uh, and push the button yeah. so we can hear you. Yes, I will. Uh, before I begin, let me just say that it's a pleasure to be here and kind of strange to talk about AI and machine learning in a setting this sort of old school. Um, but uh, yes, no, um, I think that basically my broad prediction is that we'll see a lot more of machine learning tools and these sorts of sophisticated statistics in journalism going forward. There's a couple of reasons for this. One is that there's obviously been a huge demand in industry for these sorts of skills that might be becoming saturated soon, hopefully, and more people will be, you know, will escape the lure of, of all, the, all the money and so on that is offered for these kinds of skills. Um, the second reason is that people are sort of waking up to the possibilities. I think we're just scratching the surface of what you can do with video, what you can do with images, what you can do with audio even. I actually listened to a very interesting talk recently where people use the change in pitch of newscasters to detect their bias towards certain politicians in China. And that actually ended up being predictive of who ended up on the steering committee. So I think we, we really are scratching the surface and I, I can't wait to, to see what comes of it. Now, Tara, you're in the middle of all of this because you are uh, one of the people behind datajournalism.com. And uh, how would you see the impact it has on data journalism? And can you share some examples also where this machine learning comes into play? Yeah, I think we've seen some interesting stuff on the R blog where they were talking about how ChatGPT can be used to actually run a script or even create a data set, run a script. And then when it makes a mistake, you can ask it to correct itself. So I think we're gonna see more and more of that, um, making the data journalist's life a little bit easier, um, maybe automating tasks. Of course, you still have to understand what you're doing and understand maybe a bit about R before you do something like this, but I could even see it maybe eventually being embedded into an interactive, like a, sc a scrolly telling experience where you know, you're kind of explaining to the user what kind of data or visualization they're actually looking at. Because you know, we spent a lot of time making these um, data viz look very cool, but do our audiences really understand it or are they taking the time to interpret that data? So there could be some bite-sized things. Who knows, even with sonification like Simon has talked about and The Economist has done, we could even get a chatbot to help us sonify stuff more quickly because that's quite an intense process. Um, so yeah, and then of course we're seeing it visually as well. But I think AI is also being used already in, in regular journalists' lives with you know um, Trint and other transcription tools, or even being used to s show a journalist that maybe they should think about the gender balance and the visuals in their stories. So there's lots of different things that are already being done. Yeah, Simon. Yeah, I mean I think if we take a step back from the scary technology that we don't quite know how to use yet. I think one of the things, what is the thing that makes a data journalism story really excellent? What is the thing that makes it amazing and has impact? 
it's not necessarily the technology. We focus so much on the, the how we do stuff and the clever tech tricks we perform to get the story, but really it's the human selection of that story, that story idea and that concept and those human ideas. And really the technology is just a way to achieve that. I think the same is true of AI. You know, good stories will always matter and good data stories will always kind of win through and be things that, that have impact and power. Yeah. So, Andre, can you share some, you just shared an uh, insight about uh, the pitch of voice, but did you work at The Economist? Uh, what is an example where you, where you like to draw on? Yeah, so I think there is basically a couple of ways you can cut this. Um, so one is just using these tools to, to find data and so on. And I think probably most of us will do that pretty soon as, as these things are being integrated into search engines and so on. And, and also to some extent this is machine learning already. Um, now, the second way you could look at it, I think, is for analysis. So let's say that you have a huge complex data set and you want to draw some insight out of it. Um, in my work, I, I sort of use these techniques um, pretty much every week. I think it's a, it's a standard part of my toolbox. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to share it, um, making it open source and so on, um, because I think it can be really powerful. Yeah. That said, I think it also can be misused. You know, some of these are very intransparent, and we'll probably see a lot of bad uses of it too. So it, it sort of it needs a good story at the bottom as a, as a fundament. It needs an interesting and important question. It needs context. It needs some human knowledge of what is going on. But given that, you can really leverage these tools to great effect, I think. Um, and if you wanted some, some concrete examples, yeah. I could provide that as well. Um, one. one. One example. Um, well, I'll, I'll give you one because it, that, that sort of um, elucidates a bit of the uh, tiresome process that goes into this as well. Uh, so last spring, I did a project looking at um, misinformation on Twitter. Um, this was when, I'm not sure if many of you recall, but there was this I stand with Putin, I stand with Russia, hashtag trending globally. I was very curious what was going on. Um, and so what I did was I collected a bunch of the accounts that used this hashtag extensively. I then manually categorized the posts that they, they were putting out. Many of them were just promoting stuff. They were sort of leveraging the, the hashtag because it was popular. You know, they were spamming cryptocurrencies and so on. Um, but many also actually put out content that was, you know, say pro-Russian or even pro-Ukrainian. Um, and so I categorized a couple of thousand of these. I then trained a machine learning model using natural language processing to do this automatically. And then I, I ran that model on a couple of million tweets. And what I detected was that there was a cluster of accounts centered in South Asia, probably in troll farms there, I, I believe, paid by some nefarious actor, actually pushing pro-Kremlin content at the time. And this was a very crucial moment as well because it was right as the vote in the General Assembly was coming up. So this is one way in which you can use these tools. And obviously, I couldn't manually categorize millions of tweets. That would be impossible. One example. Yeah, okay. I feel them coming. Go ahead. I know, I'll be really quick. So I would advise everybody to look at the work of Anatoly Bondarenko at Texty in Ukraine. Their work has been amazing. They're in a war, right? This, these guys, half of the team are, in, are actually on the front line, but they're still producing data journalism. They're using these tools, and they're a great leveler, right? You don't have to be the New York Times. You don't have to have a massive newsroom to, to use these tools to their kind of full extent and create really beautiful work. Yeah. So I'd invite everybody to look at Texty. Their, their just work is terrific. Yeah. Access to quality data remains a challenge um, for data journalists. Uh, Tara, how important is it to have access to quality data and what impact does it have um, with, for the trust also in the audiences? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes without saying how important it is to have access to quality data. Um, and if you don't have access to it, how can you build that data set yourself? But when you do have access to some data, you need to understand the best way to actually interview the data, as we say, like the who, what, where, how, like how is this actually collected by who and what's their agenda. So I think that that is really important and those skill sets are really why it's important to be continuing your learning um, as a data journalist. Like it's a lifelong experience. I think it's not gonna end after you do a course or after you even study something on datajournalism.com. So yeah, I think that that, I'm sure Simon and Sandra could speak to that as well. Yeah, yeah, Simon, you're a teacher. You're uh, of data journalism. You formerly were at Guardian. Um, you're data editor at Google now. Um, 
I mean, we started this, uh, uh, you started your blog a decade ago. I mean, it feels uh, like yesterday, but it isn't. Um, how important is the concern about access to quality data? It's, it's amazing to me, because if you look at the survey results, as long as it, I, I put it here, 57% of journalists think that getting hold of data is a challenge. That's astonishing to me that's still the case. Back in the day, when I was at the Guardian, 14 years ago, we started the data blog, and the reason we did that was to make it easier for people to access data because data was being published on PDFs. And here we are, 14 years later, and data's still being published on PDFs. It's still hard to get hold of. You know, in the States, um, where I live and work now, a lot of journalists do FOIA requests to get data that comes to them handwritten on pieces of paper. It's insane to me that's still the case. Now, why is that still the case? And the answer must be that, really, it's, in the, it's not in the interests of those in power to release data. That can be the only reason. Otherwise, they'll make it as easy as possible to get that data, and they don't. I mean, right now, I work on Google Trends. Um, you can download and access that data. It's ironic to me that you know the, this tech company that I work for provides data in a simpler and easier way than a lot of governments. It's, yeah. uh, it's not good. It needs to get better, and we need to keep pushing for better access to data. Yeah, Sandra, do you think that all these actors, governments, uh, researchers, international organizations, what, what role should they play in ensuring that data has a high quality but also is accessible? I mean, we hear from Simon that he feels that his company can access it even better, but what, what, do, what kind of role should everybody play there? I think ultimately you need an alignment of incentives. Um, so for a lot of governments, their systems are just terrible uh, data-wise. So so they might not they might just have pieces of paper. But I, but but of course many governments actually actively try to make it hard to access their data. Yeah. Um, we've seen these um, analyzing Russian election results uh, to bring up another example from that country. Um, what I would say is that as journalists, the thing that I think we can do is to um, show how powerful releasing data can be, not only in negative stories, so sort of not only on the risk angle for governments and detecting problems, but also in what kind of solutions work and, and do not work and, and identifying those. Um, the other thing I, I would say is that there is an expectation now that you should be transparent, and I think that's something that we, we need to try to push forward on. Um, one of the things I, I know I'm, I'm sitting uh, here with people from, from, from Google and so on is these huge new language models that many people think will transform the way we live and work and so on are to me extremely intransparent. And I think that is a problem. I see the challenges, of course. You know, they're an intense competition with each other about getting the best models and so on. But, but the problem is that it's very hard to gain insight into, into how these work and what kind of data goes into training them. Um, so there, too, is, is a space, I think, for data journalists in particular to be very vigilant in, in trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah, is the, is the dominance of uh, big players, for, in your eyes, too much? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just the structure of it, right? I, at the moment, the only actors who can do the, the sort of cutting edge models are a few very big and, and very sort of um, niche companies um, and a few governments, and that's it. There's no academic institution that can run models at this, at this scale, um, and there's certainly no journalistic outfit that can do it. Uh, hopefully, technology will change in a way that makes it accessible to everyone, but maybe not, and I think that's the reality we have to live with and, and try to, to handle as best we can. Yeah. If we look at the third point that we put on the slide, is about uh, one in three data journalists are completely self-taught. And, and uh, uh, it also emphasizes how online resources are important for data journalism community. I mean, Simon, you're also a teacher. Is that, I mean, a decade in uh, for you, is that surprising still? Or do you see signs where you are a teacher, but do we yeah. see it being taught elsewhere as well? So I teach a course in uh, the Medill School. They do a, 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 a one, one semester a year. I, I teach a course in San Francisco for people who want to learn about the, kind of the basics of data journalism. And one of the things that I don't teach is I don't spend a ton of time on the tools themselves. I highlight tools and I say, these tools are available and they can do this cool thing, whatever it might be, you know, whether it's tools that we do, like Pinpoint or whatever, but it's also things like Flourish and Data Wrapper. These are amazing tools that are out there. People can learn how to do them. My main concern is honestly about teaching the concepts and the idea of 
this is a story you're trying to present a story you're not being you're not showing off you're not just being clever to prove prove how smart you are you're trying to convey a story to people and those concepts i think are actually harder seem harder for students to get actually than just showing people how to make a chart so i do I, it doesn't entirely surprise me and you know, the fact is that the tools we um uh we we use now are always changing they're going to be different in a year's time than they are today so so a lot of that stuff you've got to learn yourself but i think also it does reflect the fact that even though this this study shows how mainstream data journalism has become every newsroom pretty much now has you know somebody doing this work it's still not really part of the establishment. So it's become mm. mainstream without becoming accepted as establishment. There's no career path for data journalists. It's hard to progress in the newsroom as a data journalist still. So, so it doesn't surprise me that so much of, it, of that learning, that expertise is online because data journalists are okay working with each other, you know? They're collegiate in ways that other fields aren't. So yeah, it's not a huge surprise. But. Yeah, Tara, Tara, there's, a, there's a, a enormous amount of resources on datajournalism.com and still in this survey, this comes to the surface and, and I mean, uh, give an example, one or two of the resources available and you, you would say, we wish making it available would help that. But yeah. what, can you give two examples? Yeah, we have um, a few data journalism handbooks translated into Portuguese, Japanese, Greek, and I think Persian, um, <laughs> randomly. Um, and we also have lots of videos on there, and we have the podcast, conversations with data, and our newsletter. We have long reads, we have blogs, and we try and educate people about the latest in data journalism and that's our mission and that's what we're aiming to do. So that's all free and many people have started their careers just by watching that Python course taught by uh, Winnie de Jong in um, the Netherlands, uh, I've been told. And it's, yeah, it's really made an impact, I think, on some people. So that's all free, it's out there. There's other resources too. And of course, I should say we're funded by Google um, and that's been a huge help. And it's really made an impact, I think, on the industry and their lear lifelong learning in data journalism. Yeah. Lifelong learning. How did you start? I mean, where did you acquire your skills? Uh, yeah, so um, I, I'm not sure if I'm self-taught or not. Um, I'm certainly not trained in journalism. Um, I was in academia uh, studying international relations before I, I started my current gig. Um, so um, I'm not sure, sure what that counts as. Um, I want to pick up on, on a point though that you made that I thought was really important, which was um, this thing about the fundamental skills versus the technical sort of current skills. Yeah. And I think that is some training that I did get as, as part of my education that, was, that has been very useful for my work now. And I think structuring courses around, you know, this is the latest R package or Python tool or, or, or something like that is, is, is sort of not the way you should teach it in a university setting for sure. Um, and, and I think there, there is sort of a, um, you know, these basic skills, you need those first before you can apply any, any, any tool to great effect. Um, identifying the important questions, research design, these sorts of things that really enable you to, to leverage them uh, effectively. So. Is, is um, you come from a different background, but yeah. is journalism becoming much more intertwined with research, deep research, and uh, or do you think that these two things are always been kind of aligned? I I am not sure if I know know a good general answer to that. I mean, I, at our organization, the data team has a, has a fair bit of people from academia. Um, I still, you know, publish papers and and sort of cooperate with researchers, um, but I do not think that's a general trend necessarily. What I'm hoping to see though, and I think COVID was a big part of this, yeah. is researchers responding more immediately to what is going on in the world. Because sometimes you need actually that input. You need an epidemiologist to, to you know, tell you what is going on and you need it that week. You can't wait half a year for them to publish a paper. And I think there's a growing sense in academia now that you know, by responding quickly, by, be, by being there, when it matters, they can make a difference. And if they don't, then, then someone else, some of their colleagues will, and they'll be disagreeing with them and be really mad later. That was an interesting <laughs> finding, wasn't it? That yeah. how much of the work of data journalism was, was around COVID. Yes. And what yes. a moment that was. Because you know, COVID, if you think of that as a story that nobody really understood what was going on, 
we wanted certainty and numbers, and it was a, a great opportunity for data journalism. I'm sorry, it's not as a horrible thing, but it's as, as a way for data journalism to prove that it can help and make the world just that little bit better. I think it was really important for that. Yeah. Did that remain, that, that, that attention for that, or do you think that we all think the pandemic, I mean, it feels like... A I mean, it's interesting how many people in the survey said they were still working on COVID-related stories. I mean, I think you're going to see the same now with Ukraine, right? That, I mean, what it illustrates to me is how often, when there's a big story, journalists need data journalists to help tell that story and make it more understandable. Mm. The fact that the biggest story of the world right now is Ukraine, and that's where a lot of data journalism is working, is, is, is a good sign of how important the field is. Yeah. I believe that uh, journalism underestimates the visual side of it. It's almost yeah. sometimes an afterthought, but one of the things from the survey showed that data visualization training is the one that is most in demand skill. Mm. Um, Tara, what trends did we notice there coming out of the, the, the journalism community? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is this obsession with data viz, and there's the Data Visualization Society, there's a whole industry around just data visualization, and I think it's quite the sexy thing to learn. Having said that, I don't know if that's really the most important thing when you're starting out and you're trying to, I feel like it's, it's not the meat of the story, it's the icing on the cake, if you will, and there's a lot to be said for these free tools that Simon mentioned, like Flourish and Data Wrapper, that you could learn in an hour. I mean, they're so easy and they look so good. Um, and they're simple. Sometimes the simple way is the best way, I think, when you're starting out. But sure, if you're a designer and a developer and you want to build your skills and learn Svelte and D3 and do all these cool interactive things, that's great. And if you're at the New York Times and you've got a budget for that, go for it. That inspires other people and it inspires new tools. Yeah. But um, I think we should also remember that the data analysis is also really important. And um, I, yeah, so. Do you have a, do you, go ahead. No, yes. I, think, I think one thing I want to highlight is that the data wrapper team are actually in this room right now, which is cool. And one of the things that's amazing about data wrapper, we think about it, it's been around for like over 10 years, built by the community, built by journalists for use by journalists, and it's still there, still exists, still getting better, and still being used a lot. We see a lot of entries to the Sigma Awards that, that have data wrapper attached. You see it all over the place in kind of delightful places. So that is really an amazing thing because a lot of data viz companies have gone on to become like business intelligence companies where which is boring. So to see the data wrapper is still there and still still rocking it is really powerful. So congrats guys, thank you for for doing that. I think it's really powerful and important. Do you have a, an example of what you saw the economist approach to data visuals yeah, in, in a no, favorite piece? I, I think the the sort of the challenge here is that there is sort of two different skills that are often seen as the same skill, which I think is representing data and then using analyzing data. Um, and, and in many cases, the you know the same person will do both. So, um, for instance, uh, John um, Bern Murdoch at the FT, he both does the analysis and produces yeah. the charts. Um, whereas in other organizations, that that's, that's not what is going on. You have one person doing the analysis and another person doing the design, essentially. Um, and I think it's you know extremely impressive when people can do both. But I think we should celebrate both skill sets in a way, because a powerful visual representation can be way way more can sort of not just elevate the work, but it can be the work in a way. It can sort of the way you represent the data can can actually provide the insight itself. And I think that is that is very interesting. Um, so for instance, on, on my end, I'm no designer. I, I know how I process information, but I fortunately have colleagues who can sort of tell me like, oh, you know, that doesn't make any sense at all. You should do it this way. And I can say, I agree. Um, thank you. In a way, doesn't it represent like both a good thing and a bad thing? The good thing is people thinking of how important visuals are. And I can remember when I worked on the newspaper when vis data visuals were often just seen as a as an illustration, you know, we can get a picture, it'll fill that space. And now they're seen as much more integral, which is great. But at the same time, it probably represents the fact that a lot of newsrooms don't have the resources to have a full design team. Yeah. Right? They don't have, like, necessarily have a designer and people that can build stuff that you need to be producing your right, right story and you need to produce visuals and do everything together at the same time. Yeah, so like 
photography was for a long time. Uh, oh yeah, 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 but we need an image with this, and now we need something. Can you visualize this? So because yeah. I, I think is that, is, do you encounter that that sometimes data is so rich that the only way to get it across is making a good visual mm. out of it, or is that too simple? To I say? Mean, I think one of the great things about this field is that the end result, almost like the output of the work of a data journalist can be anything, right? It can be a written piece, or it can be an amazing interactive visual, or it can just be a number, it can be something on TikTok. Or, a, you know, like Federico Frangipani does this amazing TikTok feed that really goes viral all the time. So you can just do data journalism, the end result can be anything. And that's the really powerful and exciting thing about working in this field. And often, you know, the only way, you know, sh the only way to, really visualize, uh, to understand the story is to see it visually because, you know, we're humans, right? We understand things visually way more than we're going to understand being told or, or reading it. So. Yeah. In 21, the pandemic was really what shaped data journalism. 22, it's Ukraine war. Mm -hmm. um, but it also increased the challenges, the, the, the challenges about how to verify data. Yeah, I, I think... In some ways, if, if the pandemic was about data journalism, then I think the Ukraine war is about open source intelligence, which, which in some ways is data journalism, but oftentimes it's, it's a sort of a related but different skill set. I certainly find the Ukraine war way more um, sort of challenging to approach from a data perspective. If the, during the pandemic, I knew which number I wanted, I knew which quantities I, I, I should try to, to acquire, even if you know, they didn't exist or, or they were very hard to, to sort of um, get at, I at least knew the question. With the Ukraine war, it's, it's, it's a different thing altogether. Um, and of course, the incentive to misrepresent are way higher as well. You, know, you have both sides trying to convince me of something that's not true because you know, they obviously want to hide their military movements, say. Um, and it's just making it very, very difficult, I think. Is it, is it, yeah, I mean, the pandemic was hard to understand, but war is even more, I mean, pandemic, it's what it is, but that was a huge battleground of what it is or where it comes from, but war is even, because you're being fed deliberately yeah, also wrong information and wrong data. Exactly, the, 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 the competition in narratives is way stronger in war. I think, you know, there, there were of course sides in the pandemic too, especially authoritarian governments who wanted to underplay the, the true extent of the pandemic in their countries, but, in the war, you have two sides, and they both have sort of explicitly competing narratives of what is going on. Um, and so you always have to take that into account um, in, in a way that's different. Um, yeah. than, than you, you've done a project recently, haven't you, around misinformation and... Yes. Yeah. Um, well, so, so one of the things that I did recently was, was actually say, okay, well, I hear all these um, stories about, you know, where the front lines are, where the battles is going on. Um, but, but how, how do I know, right? It's just sort of, it seemed very intransparent to me, so I, I turned to satellites instead, looking at thermal imaging. Um, but, but in the end, the result is, is not something as easily digestible as say, you know, like this is the extent of the pandemic in the country. It's a series of events scattered all across Ukraine. Um, and then sort of deriving a narrative from that is, is very hard. Yeah. Uh, Tara, the European Journalism Center, we hosted the Ukraine special uh, during the Sigma Awards. Um, then lots of these challenges of OSINT teams came about and experts and, and they, they encountered many issues about verification. Yeah, so um, Marianne Bouchard and I hosted um, this summit, mini, mini online summit, and we interviewed, one of the things we did was we interviewed um, the Financial Times and CNN about their OSINT output and they talked about how they were kind of marrying data with verification and OSINT, so it was more of an explanatory experience. Um, explained to people about the geography, the maps, how this war was gonna, how, how it began, why it began, and also just putting into context for the reader who wasn't familiar with the geography of Ukraine or, or the history. And that was quite fascinating because um, the, they had these long interactives that were, it was a story, it was a map, it was um, footage and OSINT images from um, lots of different social media areas, reporters on the ground also reporting. And it was just suddenly all this merged into one. And it really was, I think, a new form of, of data journalism, um, or, or rather just 
because it was all these complicated things together, it was just providing so much rich material um, that really added a lot to the to the audience's experience of an understanding of the war. Yeah. So yeah, that was quite powerful, I think. Yeah. Simon, the, the Sigma Awards, you're one of the people behind it and, and uh, we are happy also to be partner of making sure that as much people as possible see it. Um, but there you must have also seen that the Ukraine war coverage was very dominant, I think, in, in what, what came about. What, what caught your eye there? Yeah, so I, I mentioned this project before, the, the NRK project on um, called Worlds Apart, I think is really beautiful. It's just a beautiful piece of work. It's about kind of how people see different information. It's like literally an illustration of information bubbles, misinformation bubbles as well. Uh, I think that's, that's an incredible piece of work. What's really interesting about the Sigma Awards this year is how a lot of the winners are not from big well-resourced newsrooms left from small organizations. Maybe they're working on their own or with just like a one or two other people to produce kind of really impactful and interesting work. Mm -hmm. So I'd advise everybody to have a look at those, um, uh, the, the winners online. All of the winners are, are here. They're all in Perugia over the next few days. We've got a panel tomorrow morning at 11 um, with, with some of them. There's, there's been one panel today, there's another panel on Saturday as well. So yeah, definitely get a chance to, to say hello to people because they're doing fascinating work, often in kind of difficult situations as well. Yeah. Majority of data journalists report an issue of national importance and half covering politics and government. It seems to be something that is really prominent. Yeah. National issues and politics in government, that is dominant in data journalism. Do you, do you have an explanation for that? I mean, I would be interested to know how many of those people are what I call kind of polling reporters, which I don't think, I mean, look, I all respect I, I, to people who work on polling data, I think it's great, it's important. I'm not doing it out. I don't think it's the same as, as data journalism. And um, I think they're different. Fields and part and partly just the source of data you're using is so ephemeral and weird and, and different. So it could be that I think also what came across to me in those results was how many people work across a ton of different beats. It's like you are you you have to be the the boss of everything if you're a data journalist in the small newsroom. You have to understand politics, health reporting, um, you know, finance and economy. And my thought was, I thought what was going to happen was that people were going to get specialized. And there are some specialized data journalists out there, but a lot of people are just running flat out to report across, like, was it five beats was the average in yeah. the data? That's crazy. How can yeah. you know and really understand everything when you're covering so much stuff? Yeah. Do you? I mean, what sort of jumps out to me is that there's, there has to be tremendous potential in local journalism, yeah. right? If, yeah. if, if all the data journalists are currently covering these national is issues, international issues, then what about the people who like, know their context really well can really target a story and, and sell it to a local audience? I, I, I do hope and I do believe that that, that is a frontier of, of data journalism for sure. And, and why would you think that is important? Because the small thing also matters, not just only these big events. And of, yes, of course. And, and, and also because these journalists have, a, have an opportunity to, um, to sort of focus on, on issues that, that wouldn't get coverage in an international or national publication. Mm. And they also understand their context and can specialize in their context in a way that is, is impossible for someone seeking to cover an entire country. Yeah. Yeah, just, just to add to that, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, what we are seeing is not, this isn't big news, but it's not a surprise. But, you know, we have news deserts, especially in, in the States where I live now, around the world, right, where people are not getting local journalism. And the result of that, we see the result of that, which is kind of corruption and, you know, and, and, uh, and the rise of this misinformation. So there is an incredibly important role for local data journalists to be able to tell important local stories and, and ways that people understand to investigate and expose wrongdoing but also just to help people understand where they live in better ways so it's super important do you think that's also again here we go the matter of resources money available for that or do you, i mean you just explained it's very often small teams you, that yeah. you see reporting it so it seems that money plays a role but it's more being driven by the data i mean i think if you say you can't do data journalism because of money whoops that's, that is a cop-out you know data journalism is not expensive there are tools there are free tools 
you know, it's more, it's more just allowing reports to, to have the time to, it's time, time is what you need. I don't think it's about having a ton of resources. Yeah, it's great to have money and resources, but actually often it's about giving people the space to explore what's going on. And the fact that a local reporter can use local data to tell a local story, that's, that's something that just needs to be supported at all levels. Yeah, Matera, do you think in, in all the, the work that you do also for datajournalism.com, did, is money an issue? Is that something that comes up? Is it the resources are needed, but uh, the funding or grants, what, what do you... I mean, yeah, there could always be room for more funding, I think. No one's going to say that. But I, I think it's, like Simon said, you, you have to actually invest the time and the pressure, the time pressure in a newsroom, I'd say, is the biggest challenge. Yeah. And the time pressure also to learn some of these skills. But some of it can be learned very easily. Um, so, yeah. But, yeah, we do want to invest in new training, I think, on datajournalism.com. And I think there could be definitely some new courses we could put up. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly around AI and machine learning, as we saw with the results, people don't see much benefit. Having said that, that was done before ChatGBT went viral and people really understood how much AI is already being used in the newsroom. So yeah, those are the things, those, that's on my wish list. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard somebody say that, yeah, well, data journalism is already there for 10 years and now AI is so important, so you should start this as, a, as an organization. But I think, I think that's, I, I have not seen any evidence for that because I think AI and data journalism is such a great marry-up. Do you think yeah, so? No, so? no, I, I agree. And, I, and, and just picking up, up on your point, Tara, I think the sort of resources that are put out by, by centers like, like yours are extremely useful because these local journalists can then quickly acquire the skills. And, and hopefully these AI tools will make it even easier, right? I mean, you're already seeing... One way to look at ChatGPT, for instance, is as a way to interact with a large language model without coding, which is, you know, because they've been around for a, for a while now. It's just you, you needed to, to set up like a giant system to, to interact with it. And making it simple, I, I think, is, is really powerful and a powerful tool for data journalists. Yeah. Um, and, and also another thing, which I do think is, is something that we should, should applaud, is many organizations um, and, and tech companies make local data available. So if you go and say Google Trends, you can actually go down pretty narrowly and look at a local area. And that can be extremely important if you're, if you're focusing on that area. Yeah, there are, there are a ton of ways you can do stuff right now, uh, but it's all in service story. You've, you know, you've got Google Trends, which we work on, but there are just like, uh, so many easy ways into this. You shouldn't be a blocker, I think. Yeah. Talking about sourcing some data from the crowd, uh, there must be some questions. Do we have some fine people here on the stage? I see one, two, two hands. Can somebody facilitate the microphone? Um, let's go for the difficult one first, then in the... <laughs> there we go. Thank you, that was really interesting. Um, I just want to pick back up on the education topic. Um, I feel like so much of data journalism is focused on, you know, learning, whether that be storytelling techniques or tools or whatever. Um, of course, so much of that does happen within newsrooms and within, um, you know, teams of colleagues and things like that. But for freelance journalists, what I'd love to, yeah, get your thoughts and solutions and advice on is really about where does mentorship sit within that? And I don't just mean receiving mentorship, but also giving mentorship. Are there any programs or experiences that you've had between that? I feel like there's so much peer-to-peer -peer learning, but not so much kind of up and down <laughs> uh, growth within that. Yeah, thank you. Um, mentorship. You're a teacher, you're in the work, you, we start with you. Oh, yeah. sure. Um, well, I mean, like, just in, in concrete terms, we, we offer traineeships that are paid and, and, and so on, um, and fellowships. So, so there's sort of, there's formal structures in place, but beyond our, our organization, which is obviously not, not a huge one, um, you do have centers like the um, Reuters Center, um, who offer fellowships and, and training projects like that. I think it is an important question, though, and I, I don't know of any structured way in which you can sort of mentees and, and mentors can, can get together and meet. Um, and it's a shame. I think there should be more, especially, I think, across newsrooms, um, there's a lot of potential. I mean, not across newsrooms, but from a newsroom to, to freelancers. Um, the only thing that, that, that I can say, you know, beyond a few people that I try to mentor, um, 
is that I try to share my code and, and methods and make that, that openly available and you know outside the paywall and all that. And hopefully people can use the tools that I, that I develop and in their own reporting. Um, but obviously that's just you know, a drop in the ocean. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is really hard if you're a freelancer. Are you, are you a freelancer, is that what you ask? Yeah. So I think the, the fact that there are a ton of resources online is really useful. I want to give a shout out to Vince from, from our, you know, organized a lot of our training teams, people do go out and train. I, I think, um, you know, one of the things I noticed in the survey was that a quarter of data journalists work on projects with data journalists from other organizations and freelancers and so on. That to me suggests that data journalists are naturally more kind of collegiate and open to collaboration than other, than other fields. So I, I, I think, you know, reach out to those people, those, those people you admire in the field and ask them if they can help you or stuff because you'd be surprised how often people will just say, yeah, of course, here's, here's the data or here's how you do that. Uh, I, think, I think there probably could be more structured kind of ways to mentor people that aren't necessarily in, in like in a newsroom and who are outside or who are just learning for sure. Uh, that's a really good point. It would be a great add-on, uh, isn't it, Tara, if we would have a mentorship program also, a fellowship program? I was just program. thinking, I'm like, yeah, Sabrina, that's a brilliant um, question, and you point to a real need in the community. And I think for the freelancers who kind of st self-studied and maybe do the occasional data journalism piece but want to build their skills, there's a real need. And, yeah, we, we could do that. Yeah. <laughs> ben, is there anything you want to add about the work that the GNI is doing in this area? F I can tell you, you'll give me the, the eyes. Vincent Ryan is in the back, and he's one of the people behind our partnership as well. Hello. Sorry, I wasn't expecting this. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, uh, so if you're interested in training, um, through Google we have uh, 14 teaching fellows in different parts of the world who can train across 12 different languages and most of them can do a basic intro into data journalism, they will explain the basic concepts and will train fairly extensively in Flourish, Trends and that's kind of it. Uh, we can do different levels. No, we, we generally start at beginner but we will work up. We also have a website which is called g.co forward slash news training. Knock yourselves out. There you go. <laughs> You, you got that one. Good, uh, Vincent. Thank you so much. Um, uh, you had a question here. Uh, yes, please ask the question. Uh, there's a microphone coming. Hi, um, thank you. You have all talked about the potential positive aspects of AI, chat, GBT, but do you not worry that both of those tools could potentially be incredibly damaging when put into the hands of Russian propagandists or into the right wing, potentially, of particularly in America, Camp Trump and all that sort of thing. I had a second question as well. How do you deal with when you have a very disturbing, upsetting story? You touched this a little bit with COVID that is very heart-rendering, but actually is fascinating in terms of the data Associated. How do you deal with that in terms of being a journalist versus kind of emotions versus impartiality? Mm. Two questions. If it gets into the wrong hands, and do we, we talk positively about it, but yeah, we also okay. see the dangers? Do you want to go first? I, I, have, a, I have a thought. But. Okay, yeah, no, no, I, I can go first. Um, I think about it a lot. Um, as I said, I'm, I'm sort of, one, one, one thing that makes me worried is that I, I don't feel like I have a good sense of what is actually going on. Um, and I think it's very unpredictable and I think that's sort of the highlight of these systems is sort of the, especially things like emergent behaviors where they're suddenly doing new things. Um, to have like a concrete example, I at one point for various reasons was calculating trade routes by, by ocean and I had a program set up to do that and suddenly it started going north all the time and, and it turned out that it figured out that there wasn't actually any land over the North Pole. Um, so it was a mistake on my part but it's sort of this thing that I, I never anticipated. Um, and, and so yeah, it, it's something that we try to cover in our reporting and, and yeah, our cover this week is on AI so um, we're very worried about it. Uh, but you had a, another thought? I'm, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna try and be optimistic about it just because, you know. Um, so one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the coverage when, when all of these LLMs were released was how much people were trying to force the LLM to say something. Is that a New York Times piece where the guy got, got, got ChatGPT to tell him to leave his wife for it? Stuff like that. So, and what's been interesting to me is like looking, because I use ChatGPT and then I use Bard, which is the Google version. 
and you cut, there are some, they've already got some safeguards built into that already. Like if you try and get it to ask about the Holocaust or stuff like that, it, it will talk about misinformation that field. So I, I think it's fixable actually. I think it is like, you know, there are some really smart people working on, on AI in big companies who are aware of this and are thinking about it. So I, I don't, I, don't I, I think there is potential for misuse, obviously. But I don't think it's, it's an unfixable problem. It's a fixable problem. It just has to be the focus and attention on it. The second question about, like, sorry, I'm really whizzing through because I know about time. Uh, the second question about, like, um, uh, how do you keep the humanity in stories about COVID? I think that's really interesting. So there was a piece, this isn't about COVID, there was a piece about the AR-15 in the Washington Post last week. Anybody see this? It was just before the last kind of horrific school shooting. And it was about, what they did was they showed the damage that the AR-15, we know an AR-15 is this particular military-style rifle that's very popular in the States at the moment, and the damage that, that does compared to a handgun. They got permission from the parents of some of the kids who'd been shot in previous school shootings to show the damage that that gun did to their kids' bodies. And it was so powerful, it's based on real kind of data, but it's a really human story as well, it's very hard to to look at, but it's also really important to look at and to understand this, this thing that's actually happening right now. So, so I think it's really possible and some of the best data journalism is quite emotional and should feel human. So when you combine traditional reporting and data and it makes something stronger and better, I think. To end this, um, thank you for this. I, I remember that piece of well, and I was like, yeah. at first I was a bit afraid to go look at it, but it's, it's done in a very yeah, mindful everybody way. everybody should look at it. It's, it's should, yeah, super powerful. Yeah. Tara, maybe you could put on a slide uh, with all the resources and everything mm -hmm. that we pack on datajournalism.com. Um, thank you, Tara Kelly, Simon Rogers, Solna, Sol, Solstad. Um, why do I keep, uh, I have to get my yeah. data right. It's, it's in front of me, <laughs> no, but uh, don't worry about it. I, Sondra, I Sondra, sorry. Um, thank you so much for having this uh, panel here at the festival. I hope you will enjoy much more. The bells are ringing and the sun is shining. Thank you very much.